You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. Um, welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is June 2nd, 2022 at 7.36 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I've been talking uh, the last couple of weeks about peace and the peace, uh, finding peace and also peace with a sense of self-experience. And I thought that I would continue with this. I am going to be traveling uh, for the rest of the month of June so that the next meeting of this will be in the first week of July. Uh, Well, the first week, it's the 27th of June, but the Thursday, I think it's a the 1st of July, am I wrong? Let's see. Uh, nope, it's actually the 30th. Nope. Am I wrong? I can't remember what I did. Let's see here. Yeah, the 30th of June will be the next uh, one of these after uh, after tonight. Um, <clears throat> we do often translate the word dukkha, uh, uh, which is a Pali word, into the English word suffering. Um, Shinzen used to translate it in unsatisfactoriness. And Dan uh, Brown used to translate it into reactive. So a lot of the translations that we use for the different poly terms we have were actually done in England in the 1890s when the the first texts were translated into English. Uh, And so we have those meanings which are actually uh, not American English and uh, also uh, long ago when, when they had different kinds of meaning. Um, unsatisfactoriness I like and reactivity I like. Uh, The idea here is that when you cling to things, uh, the clinging is the thing that causes the suffering. That if you don't cling and you simply allow things to arise and pass, then there's uh, a freedom from suffering. in that sense, so that it's actually the clinging or the grasping. The Dan Brown used to call it grab, the grab of sensory experience. <clears throat> um, so we also tend to talk about dukkha as three levels of, of that. One is uh, old age, sickness, and death. The second level is getting what you want and losing it, not getting what you want or having to put up with things that you don't want. And the third level is this subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is actually the way that you would have it if you were in charge of anything. The double-edged sword, it's not how you want it, and you're not actually in charge. Uh, we do uh, like these ideas of, of control able to control our environment often we limited our our, limit our environment so that we can have more of a sense of control around it 
in Shinzen's uh, way of parsing this, unsatisfactoriness means that the nature of the human condition is unsatisfactory, that we are born, uh, we grow old, we get sick, we die. There's nothing to do about that. That's the nature of impermanence. Um, it's, uh, I think in the early part of life, hard to get a grip on uh, the nature of aging. Um, you know, for the first 30 years of your life or so, the first 25 years of your life, aging is actually a good thing because you keep getting better and um, uh, more diverse skills, um, a, a better way of functioning in the world. And then once you get past that uh, part of where you're just growing and things are improving, you get to the place where you begin to age. Um, so sometime in your late 20s or your early 30s, there's that shift from growing and becoming more vital into actually aging. And most people notice it as a reduction of energy. Maybe a third of your energy is lost. lost. Um, but it stays pretty even through your 30s and through your 40s. It isn't again until you reach your early 50s that, that uh, there's another shift and you move out of that adult period into the uh, old age period. It's very funny to talk about the biology of the human body and, and to suggest that old age begins in your mid-50s because anybody who isn't in their mid-50s or older <clears throat> refuses the idea altogether. It's just simply not true that that's when old age starts. But if you've been through that and, you, and you've uh, noticed that the that actually that is the beginning of old age. Uh, it's quite different. And that, that old age period runs to about 75. Turns out most people die in their 70s, which seems like a really short time when you're 69. <laughs> <coughs> wow, that went fast. But uh, time, you know, is quite elastic and uh, you have that... Uh, sense of sometimes it seems really glacially slow and sometimes it seems really fast. Um, when you have perspective of a longer life, you, you have a sense of actually how long it takes to get anything to happen and to get anything done that you don't really have earlier in life. Uh, and um, um, have you been able to figure out what it is that you like to do, what has meaning to you yet? And have you been able to organize your life in such a way that that's how you spend your time? Or, or has that not been something that you've been able to do? All of these things uh, come up, of course, as you age. Um, <clears throat> if you have the longevity genes and you, can, and you live past your 70s into your 80s and 90s, then you have the experience of old, old age. Uh, and, and each of these periods of time are different in terms of energy and uh, engagement and capacity. Um, but the question really, or the, the conversation is really about peace. How do you have peace with the sense of uh, you're in a human body, uh, this is the human condition, this is the, the condition that we all who are in this human incarnation face. 
And can you orient yourself around uh, these uh, tracks? So we're born, we're born into the care of people who take care of us. Depending on how they take care of us, uh, we develop the skills to meet the challenges in life that we're going to have. Some of us get a better set uh, than other people do, but and it's completely faultless. Um, I think maybe, although I have been in the presence of uh, a monk or two that uh, talk about it just as the the karma of your previous life unfolding, so that if you have a terrible uh, beginning, it's because of things that you've you've done in previous lives. I've always found that to be a dubious interpretation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Or the the the, uh, the uh, I was talking to a psychiatrist the other day, and and uh, and uh, she said that uh, there's a, a whole bunch of new literature opening up on what's being called toxic positivity, which I found hilarious. Um, so, but the toxic positivity uh, spin on it would be that you intentionally choose the dire circumstances of your current life so that you can get the information that you need to then use it to help all sentient beings. Um, I tend to remain um, agnostic to the edge of atheism on this. Christian? Is there like a is there like an official or do different schools of Buddhism actually have like official stances on the sort of karma just being like just kind of straightforward cause and effect or it kind of having this i don't know to me kind of sounds like victim times, but but perhaps that's that's an unfair way of framing it like um Have you heard the story of the um, farmer and the horse? Yeah. Um, I think the thing about karma is interesting. Um, it unfolds. And most of the time we judge it as good karma or bad karma because we like it or we don't like it. But that would not be a good way of evaluating it. Um, how do you know? whether it's good karma or not, um, uh, the teachers that I've relied on have said that. What you do is you uh, learn to live an ethical life, and then in living an ethical life, what you can anticipate is good karma. So that the things that unfold, even if they're not what you intended or what you wanted, if you're living an ethical life, you can assume that they're good karma and then attempt to understand what it is that's actually happening so that you can orient yourself in that way. <clears throat> um, in the story of the horse uh, and the farmer, you know, the, the, the farmer has a horse which he uses to plow the field. And one morning he goes out and the corral where the horse was is empty. And his neighbors come by and say, what terrible luck you have. You have the worst luck out of all of us. Uh, this is such bad luck. And 
the farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? And then a few days later, the, the horse that he had trained returns with three wild horses and now he has four horses. And the neighbors come by and they say, what good luck you have. You have the best luck out of any of us. This is such good luck. And the farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? And then the next day his eldest son goes out and attempts to break one of the wild horses. It throws him and he breaks his leg. And then the farmer, the neighbors come by and say, what bad luck. You have the worst luck out of all of us. This is such a terrible luck. And the farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? And then a week later, uh, a warlord comes through town and he conscripts all of the able-bodied sons to go to war, except he leaves behind the farmer's son because his leg is broken. And the neighbors come by and they say, what good luck you have. You have the best luck out of all of us. This is such good luck in the Farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Um, <clears throat> so do you have that sense that if you're living an ethical life, that the things that unfold then are good karma, and that you then explore how uh, it might be that and go with the flow of that? Another way to examine that might be through the quantum mechanics view of that or quantum physics view of that. It's that the outcomes, these things that happen are so complex that we can't possibly compute or track uh, all of the things that happened in order for this moment to arise, nor comprehend fully what this moment is, nor predict with any sense of accuracy what our intention and action is going to produce. And so we separate intention from action and we make uh, an ethical choice in forming the intention and then take the action and then see what happens. And then goal redirect in each moment as we take in what the experience is. Again, touching into the idea of peace, that if you're in a place of peace uh, and you're not clinging to the outcome, <coughs> then you can take in the outcome and pivot into the next moment, into the next intention, into the next action without grabbing on to the idea of what should have happened or grabbing onto the idea of what you wanted and actually going in each moment with the conditions of each moment as they are. Is that making sense? And sometimes it doesn't matter what you intended the, uh, uh, or what in, in the formation of your intention you predicted the outcome would be because you don't have that. What you have is what happened. And so we're constantly moving from what happened to intention, action, what happened, intention and action, and not clinging to what we would like instead. How good at you are, are you at doing that? And then if you were to understand that actually that's freedom, 
Would it make it more desirable? Have you ever tried to get something to happen, something particular to happen and, uh, and uh, understood how much effort actually that can take to get something to happen? Or have you ever tried to have something happen and then it just sort of happens without so much effort? Which one is actually uh, better? Um, so for instance, <clears throat> I've been trying to get my book printed uh, in this period of uh, production supply issues. You may have heard about that. <clears throat> When I designed the book, I designed it with particular papers in mind. And it turned out that it was simply not possible to get those papers. Um, but I did spend a long time, maybe five or six months, trying to get them. Uh, and then in the end, um, picked a different paper. So. Um, I have a, it's a, a book of photographs. <clears throat> Where is it? Is it here? Um, it's not, but. I, I, I was trying to get it printed on 100 pound matte paper, which was not available. But what was available is paper that uh, uh, commemorative, commemorative Bibles are, are typically printed on. So, you know, uh, 100-pound paper's got a little bit of stiffness to it, and, and it sort of has a heft to it that feels uh, substantial. And, and if you've ever picked up a commemorative Bible, the paper is quite thin. Um, <coughs> but it turns out there, there was a ton of paper uh, uh, that people typically print commemorative Bibles on, and there was no 100-pound paper at all. So the book is now printed on that paper that's typically uh, reserved for commemorative Bibles, which you won't really be able to tell when you look at the book, except that the, there's a quality to the, the thinness and the opacity of the paper that's nice. Um, and then I wanted to have a three-part binding on it, but the 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 paper cover, the cover paper, and the the canvas for the the backing wasn't really available, so it's it's printed in in that way. Um, and over the course of uh, the, so uh, I started this process last uh, April, not April twenty two, April twenty one. So to give you an idea of how much effort went into uh, pushing it through. <clears throat> it's now sitting on a pallet in uh, China, and it no longer takes four to six weeks to ship something from China. It now takes uh, three or four months, if you can get a spot, which we don't have yet. So once we get a spot in a container, It'll take three or four months to come. So this is just this, uh, each time something comes up, making a decision and pushing it forward. 
it took me a few days to get used to the way the book looks because it's so different than the way that I imagined it would look. Um, but now I, I kind of like the way that it looks. Are you following me on this line of thinking? So it's moving out of creating these grand plans and then clinging to these grand plans and um, being disappointed if it doesn't go according to the planning, but actually to think about how that might work and then take the uh, form the intention of what needs to be done now, taking the action and then seeing what happens. <clears throat> There's that uh, almost a surprise uh, quality to that. Christian? <coughs> you have a sense of like the whether there's certain practices like the attachment as opposed to the vasana or sort of working together that have helped you to be flexible in these kinds of ways? Um, well, I think that you know the the combined metta vipassana practice is a good place the vipassana is really good at simply watching things unfold and watching where your attention goes uh, if you do enough practice of course you begin to see that you have uh, preferences over some things over others and that you don't create accurate representations of yourself or accurate representations of the world that you create from this highly curated selection of things that you prefer, this experience of self and experience of world, and that if you begin to open it up uh, beyond that list of preferences, you see that there's a vast array of things there that you don't normally experience because you don't focus on them. Is that making sense? So in that way, you begin to, to ex, uh, expand the view from that limited conditioning. And also, if you don't control uh, uh, the experience of sensing, uh, it opens up the, the understanding that actually it's automatic, mostly you're just creating these things automatically without the sense of self, without a self controlling it. And that uh, the more you do that, the more experience you have that the sense of self is created in the same way that the sense of the world is created. Uh, and that there isn't a doing, uh, a center uh, of the self experience, which actually makes it easier not to cling to the uh, reactions uh, of self that would demand uh, clinging, uh, if you're following me. You have a sense of self and you have a sense that it's real and you have a sense that it needs to be protected and it needs to be valued and it needs to be listened to. And when those things don't happen, you become defensive of the, that selfing experience and demand uh, that other people recognize it as this solid thing that has been damaged by their lack of attention. Um, but when you really just pay attention to the flow of these experiences coming and going, uh, 
without any intention to direct anything, you see that there's nothing substantial there that needs to be defended. And so you begin to uh, let go of those demands of other people. Is that making sense? Then you can just be in this, this flow of experience and you can take in your reactions to other people's reactions without it uh, coalescing in this rigid, hardened sense of self and the demands that come from uh, reifying that. Um, that I call that, you know, uh, moving from you did this to me to this is what I'm thinking is going on. This is how I'm interpreting what's going on. What was your intention in, in doing that? And, and being open to hearing those intentions uh, and understanding that everything that you experience is interpreted through your definitions of everything and everything that other people experience and everything that they express are based on their definitions of everything. And you need to really begin to understand what the defi definitions you're using are and the definitions that they're using <coughs> so that you can really understand each other and not get caught up in uh, defining what they, they're saying um, in your terms only. That's making sense. This is what I think is going on. It's important that you put your cards down first because if you don't do that, everybody will think you're going to trick them and they won't want to tell you what's actually going on. This is what this is what's happening for me in this exchange. What's happening for you? This is what this means to me. What did, what does it mean to you and, and what are you trying to tell me? And it, does it match how I'm experiencing it? Or this is what I'm trying to tell you, and it doesn't seem to match uh, your reaction to what I'm uh, attempting to communicate. Can we uh, come to understand each other? It doesn't mean that you always come to agreement and you may have uh, legitimate differences, <coughs> but at least you'll know what they are and you won't be reacting to uh, a misunderstanding. It's a, have you ever misunderstood someone? <clears throat> no, never happened, I don't. <laughs> and when you understood them, uh, did you regret the, uh, the, the response ever? Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it still happens to me. <laughs> <coughs> If I'm really tired, I'm my my uh, resilience uh, flags terribly, and I I can be quite uh, judgmental. <coughs> so in each moment, the arising of experience comes as pure sensing data then compared to the perceptual database where you assign meaning to it and then uh, 
in that process of assigning meaning to experience, it forms into conceptual reality, which has a quality of realness to it. The more time you spend uh, taking that apart, of course, the harder it is to believe in this in the absolute reality of it. It becomes these constructions that you're making in the moment, depending on the conditions, so that you can uh, question them. And that's really this place uh, uh, of um, greater peace is where you <coughs> constantly move back between this is what I'm taking in, this is the data, this is how I'm uh, sensing things, and this is what I'm making it into. Is this an accurate picture of actually uh, what's what I'm sensing? Is this an accurate reflection of that? and not clinging to any of, uh, of these constructions that you make. It's just a construction in the moment. And as conditions change, that construction changes. This movement, I, I think of it as almost a rocking movement back and forth. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. When you want to add another person into that, this is what I'm sensing. This is how I'm responding. I'm tracking how my response is affecting the perception of the other person. I'm tracking how they're responding to it. I'm taking in their reaction to what's happening, and I'm, I'm understanding the effect that it's having on me and how that changes the way that I respond to it so that we would call that mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, and mindfulness of inside and outside. And in not grasping on or not grabbing on to any of these uh, formulations they just come and go in this this flow and each moment is refreshed each moment is refreshed and with that ethical framework underneath it we're intending to be non-harming in each moment and uh, with people that are close to us if we really take in that sense that they are also intending not to be harming it opens um, uh, these uh, dialogues that are quite, uh, quite the <clears throat> possibility of real intimacy opens up in that. Is that all making sense? You asked about the the way in for this the other piece of course is the development of intentional positivity when we talk about uh, toxic positivity what we mean is that you use uh, uh, just the positivity um, and develop just the positivity uh, as a way of suppressing awareness of the negative uh, we we used to call it spiritual bypassing, where you you just focus uh, on the positive side of things and never attend to the negative side of things. Uh, and what you notice in those circumstances is that when the positivity gives way, you have these eruptions of uh, unaddressed, uh, unintegrated negativity that can be quite damaging. <clears throat> So in this metta vipassana approach, the vipassana side is exploring all things, including the negative, and there's no 
uh, intention to avoid that in any way, and at the same time uh, building up the positive side. The, they're they're uh, two systems that are separate, and you have to develop them independently. So we work to reduce the impact of the negative side, the shadow side of things, and we work to bolster the positive side. So then we work with um, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, to intentionally develop the capacity for loving kindness, for compassion, for joyfulness, and for equanimity, this underlying sense of peace that comes from not clinging to anything. Um, so let's do some practice. What do you think? Shall we do metta practice or shall we do vipassana practice? All right. Since nobody can choose, I will. Let's do some metta practice. So we'll start with an easy person and then and practice for self. <coughs> so any comments or questions about the practice we did? Questions about something else? All right, we do have a new level one coming up. Um, I think it's at the end of June. No, it's in July um, and August. We have a level two coming up at the end of the summer. We have a retreat that's going to be from October 1st until October 8th in person up at the Seven Circles Center in the Sierras. We're doing our first uh, European uh, class in November, uh, so that if you happen to be somebody who stays up all night long, <laughs> you can sit from one in the morning until uh, um, nine or 10 in the morning. <coughs> um, I think that's it. We're planning to take a, uh, a trip uh, uh, to Thailand in um, February, I think, mid-February, um, for three weeks, uh, sit in a monastery there. Um, as soon as those dates are finalized, I'll let you know. <coughs> That's pretty much what's coming up. Take a look at it, it's all on the website. I teach this class on a, a freely given basis, but I do hope you'll consider making a donation. There's a link on the website to do that. Uh, it helps support me and also uh, helps support the work that uh, Metagroup is doing. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you on June 30th, uh, hopefully. Bye now. <laughs>